This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. The discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a special holiday focused show here today with my special guest, Benjamin Dean, who is Director of Digital Assets at Wisdom Tree UK Limited, based in, in London and does a lot of research on crypto for us. We have Michael Batnick from the Ritholtz Wealth Team, Director of Research there, and Larry Cernak, who is uh, the head of research for the Block Crypto. Uh, we're going to be talking about crypto-focused assets. Uh, and I should just note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Discussion is not tied to the Office of Investment Products. And these are guests are their own and not those with affiliates. So a really interesting show. Larry, you your team just came out with a massive report on the state of crypto, the outlook for 2022, what's happened in 2021. Uh, maybe you could start off with what were the key developments in 2021 as you look ahead to 2022? Absolutely. Happy to be here. Um, um, so the, the biggest developments, there were definitely, you know, there were a ton. I would say the the, the announcement that really kickstarted uh, this past year was obviously Tesla. Um, Tesla announced that they bought Bitcoin. That really changed everything, uh, changed everything for crypto, changed everything for the block as a company. Um, and it really kickstarted institutional interest in crypto. Uh, so in general, you know, a lot more uh, institutionally inclined people interested um just in general all the a lot of companies got a mandate to learn more about crypto um that was that was really the thing that kickstarted uh this year uh then you know there are a lot of different developments i would say the two to point out was the absolute explosion of layer one uh networks layer one blockchains uh and and them outperforming basically everything else drastically um and then also uh, meme coins have picked up significantly. Retail interest increased a lot this year. Uh, DeFi initially performed really well in the first uh, couple of quarters and, and then kind of slowed down. Um, and this year we've battled with uh, just scaling uh, all year. Uh, there were a lot of issues with um, just just being able to, um, you know, for all the people that, that want to try these applications, right, for all of them to be able to actually use them. Uh, so I would say that's a very, very high level summary. Obviously, the report is like 160 pages and we could barely fit all that in, uh, in, in that length. Uh, so there were a lot more things and I'm sure we'll touch on them uh, during this conversation. Well, hi, this is Benjamin here. And I'd just say to anybody who's listening, uh, Larry's report there and his team, it is really phenomenal. We were saying just before coming on the air that it is so hard now to keep an eye on so, all the various things that are happening across the digital asset and crypto ecosystem. You'd need a team of like 30 different people now to be able to do a deep dive on every single piece of this space. And that kind of is a segue to if I was to say something in the last year, that's the development is that this space has not just grown in terms of awareness, but it used to be that folks used to say to me, well, how do you use any of this? Like, I can't do anything with it. Uh, they used to say it about Bitcoin. They used to say it about Ethereum. And I feel like this year, in a way, if I look around uh, last year, the whole decentralized finance DeFi part of the ecosystem started growing. Uh, and now this year we've seen with the NFT non-fungible token segment, it's just pulling more and more people in, raising more and more awareness and diversifying the ecosystem in a way that just simply wasn't there before. Uh, it's a super exciting space to be in. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens over the next year. But we can delve into that a little bit more as we go on uh, throughout this, this coming hour. So for Bitcoin, I, I, I th maybe start there. If you think about the key developments in 2021 and you look ahead, um, the, the market dominance has fallen from the 70s to 40. Like, what do you think is going on there? Is it just the rise of these other coins? Is the questions on Bitcoin? How do you, how do you think about the, the largest asset there? 
Yeah, I think uh, it's a pretty standard development in bull markets. Um, you pretty much always see other assets outperforming Bitcoin just because it's the most established, it's the most liquid, it's the hardest to move just generally. Uh, and you see a lot of these like smaller caps, like we talked about meme coins, L1s, uh, you know, a lot of the other tokens, DeFi tokens, uh, just outperforming because they're just much smaller and, and there are just tons more of them. Uh, like you look at you know, there's been an absolute explosion of new coins launching. Uh, I remember, you know, 2017, it was controversial to launch coins and it was kind of like, you know, all of it is cash grab. Uh, that was kind of the, the, the main opinion. Uh, now it's almost the opposite, where like, if you have a product that works in crypto, you should launch a token because it's a good way for people to get invested in some way. And that's a lot of, that's the approach that a lot of projects took this year and are still taking next year. So it's, it's, it's not totally surprising to me that dominance has gone down significantly just because of the sheer like magnitude of new projects launching. Um, and kind of, you know, back to Ben's point, this was definitely the first year where we kind of bootstrap some actual usability and that that supported uh, the creation of a lot of these tokens and, and some of them are actually backed by you know, semi-real things. Michael, let me get you in here for a question. What is, if you think about 2021, looking ahead to 2022, what's the biggest questions on your, your minds for crypto here? I guess the thing that I'm most interested about is regulatory around stablecoins specifically, especially with Coinbase saying that they're going to go and then they, they weren't able to go. Uh, as somebody who is dying for that sweet, sweet 8% yield, uh, I'm just curious what you think is going to transpire in the next 12 months. Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and it's a bit of a black box, honestly. It's like uh, even the really plugged in people don't really know exactly what will happen. I think even um, even in Washington, they kind of go back and forth. Uh, in terms of stable coins, there has definitely been an increased attention to it. Like we've seen it discussed in Congress a couple of times. Uh, and it, it's a topic that people keep coming back to. And it's it's a bit because it's just getting massive, right? Now you have $150 billion uh, in stablecoins issued. And that's uh, that's already you know a decent amount of money. Uh, and some of these stablecoins, uh, I mean, mainly the, the leading tether, like there's some questions around their transparency. Uh, uh, and some people are getting you know a little bit uneasy about what can happen there if there are some issues with it. And because there's very little oversight, uh, that's you know kind of causing the people that that really are following this space to to think about just setting better standards and overall having better control over dollars. Like I, I personally love stablecoins. I think they're changing a lot of aspects of how we function today. Like if you look at even non-crypto VC deals today, a lot of them are being funded by USDC, by some stablecoins, because it's just faster. It's easier for international people. It's less. It's completely painless uh, for a lot of people. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's difficult to control, right? So if you look at it from a regulatory perspective, if someone is using Tether or USDC somewhere in I Iran or some of some of the super regulated uh, financial countries. Um, it's very difficult to spot that and be able to stop that. Uh, they can they could just adopt it and, and and use it. And I think a lot of regulators feel pretty uneasy about that. Uh, and they just want more transparency. So if I were to guess, there will be bigger standards and the US will try to play a bigger role here. Uh, but I don't think they're going to be completely regulated out uh, of, of functioning right now. Larry, just to follow up on that, one of the things that I've been thinking about, I'm not usually a tinfoil hat guy, but I, I think there might be more than a kernel of truth here, is that the regulators are nervous that uh, this the eight percent yields on stablecoins are a gateway into crypto. And when people that have money find out about it, not that it's going to pose a threat to money market funds, but come on. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's probably a realistic worry. Um, I would say, you know, if 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 a lot of capital all of a sudden flo uh, just floods in into uh, these like farms or whatever, like these high yield opportunities, obviously you will slightly go down. But I'm totally with you. Like you could see it with with Coinbase getting uh, a lot of pushback. Uh, there are a lot of lenders that are now struggling, uh, and it's I think that by itself is also just helping DeFi overall. It's because these opportunities are trustless, and and for institutions, it's absolutely difficult to engage with them. But for normal people, uh, it's it's super easy, and and the same can be said about almost anything. So as soon as, for example, China started regulating uh, perpetual swaps and then these exchanges, you know, more people started using DeFi because you can't really stop it. And as long as the stablecoins function and uh, and you have everything running trustlessly, uh, that's in my opinion is why DeFi should 
should be used. It's almost like if you're not doing regulatory arbitrage, then what are you doing? Like, why is this trustless? It's it's not uh, efficient enough. Uh, so that's that's my point of view. But I totally agree with you. Like, I think regulators will talk about this more, will step in a little bit more, and will want to have more oversight over where these dollars are going and how they're being used. How much money is in these in these stable coins now? And it's a question of the eight percent is because it's so hard to get capital in the system. As more capital comes in the system, it, it it's an interesting question. What is the sustainable yield that would come out as if they did make it easier to add capital to the system? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think there's always there's always going to be higher yield in crypto just in general because, like you said, there's more demand to get money in. It's it's a little bit rarer, uh, but but just overall, there's always more risk associated. Like in uh, basically all the farms, like even you look at something like Celsius, or which is like sort of unregulated uh, lending platform, they use some of these like DeFi opportunities, and that's how they extract the yield, and that's how people can then you know somehow like a, you know maybe it's safe, maybe it's not safe, but they can actually get that yield sustained. Uh, because there's smart contract risk, uh, there's there's some limited counterparty risks uh, that will always make it slightly riskier than obviously just parking your money in in savings accounts. And I think they will always be there. My guess would be that this can converge into like something like three or four percent, maybe not eight percent. But I really have no idea. I mean, we'll have to see. Let me reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Larry Cermak of the Block Crypto. We've got Ben Dean, who's director of Digital Wisdom Tree. We've got Michael Badnick of Ritholds Wealth. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, Larry, as as we 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 focus a little bit on Bitcoin and DeFi here, as you think about the uh, sort of the second big asset is Ether. You've had a lot of competitors to Ether between Solana, Avalanche. As you think about these other, those were some of the big winners of, of 2021. As, as you think about the competitors to Ether going forward, maybe 30 seconds on the case for Ether and and then on the competitors as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the case for Ether is pretty simple. It's the it's the oldest smart contract platform. It's almost like, like Bitcoin off. Uh, smart contract platforms. It's the most decentralized, and it's taking the, the the it's the trade-offs that it's making is is kind of trending towards decentralization. Um, so I think it's the most fundamentally sound, but it's not pushing the it's not pushing the boundaries as much as some of these other layer ones. And so when you look at something like Solana or even Avalanche, it's almost always they're taking some sort of uh, like a different trade-off. Uh, usually, it's it's much harder to verify the blockchain. It's much harder to participate in the network, but it's usually much cheaper uh, and that tends to attract a lot of the newcomers. So if you have someone that joined DeFi this year and just wanted to try a few things, like I used to recommend friends just, you know, go on Uniswap and swap a few things, but you can't do that when the swap is 60 bucks. It's like, it's just not economical unless you're trading with like at least $10,000, which most new people are not. Uh, so then at that point, you know, what can you do? You can tell them to go try Solana, you can tell them to go try Avalanche and kind of, you know, understand how uh, things are working in the background. Um, I think in the future, a lot of this activity will be solved by layer twos. Uh, but just in general, you know, the, the main pitch is always making it cheaper, faster to trade things uh, and making it friendlier to retail people. Ben, as, as you look at these, any any comments you'd add to that? It's fascinating to see how Ethereum has not quite become a, a victim of its own success, but whereas you go a few years back and people say you can't do anything with Ethereum, well, it turns out there are so many people who want to do so many things with Ethereum over the last 18 months that, yeah, the transaction fees are now prohibitive for kind of smaller investors or participants. And watch that spill over. So that has created opportunities in the markets for other alternative networks that trade off decentralization for transaction throughput, such as Solana, such as Phantom. But at the same time, like it's technical trade-offs. Solana has gone down again last week, went down a few months ago. And so, yeah, you get transaction throughput and cheaper transactions, but the network is not as resilient as uh, larger, more established networks such as Ethereum. And as Larry said, the other direction to look at here is the layer two solutions, which are alternatives to uh, increase the throughput for Ethereum. And, and the final thing I would mention is at the application la layer, especially in DeFi, <clears throat> a lot of applications have said, well, 
we can't get the kind of transaction throughput we want on Ethereum, so we're going to make sure that we have bridges or interoperability with other layer one networks like Avalanche, like Cardano, like Phantom. And so now we're watching it. I, I liken it to train lines, the way in which you used to have different train lines with different gauges, and then you need train stations to allow changes between networks. We're now starting to see that occur with these layer one networks and applications on top of them. It's just going to be fascinating to see how that plays out in the near future because it's not clear uh, which is the best model. Is is a reason Solana going down? Maybe talk about why it went down, and is that why? Like, so one of the hardest things is when you're trading these, you need to be on Coinbase or Gemini or the major custodians, and 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 what Coinbase puts on their platform versus what Gemini puts on their platform versus others uh, is always a big open question. So I'm I'm curious if if as you've heard so much on Solana and Avalanche, what are the reasons why you speculate some of the exchanges haven't made them available? If there's a risk factor that that we're not seeing or what what is that what's going on there yeah so first uh why has solana gone down it's kind of precisely what i mentioned before it's trying to push boundaries which means that the validators who are the people that are trying to you know confirm all these transactions they're running hardware that's more difficult to keep up and there are almost always going to be some issues so for example when it went, went last down which was i think like a few months ago like last week it, it slowed down significantly there were some issues but it wasn't completely down when it was down completely two months ago it was because some of the validators were running to uh just like 128 gigs of ram and it turned out that it was no longer enough so they had to upgrade to 256 gigs so it was a relatively like simple thing to fix but it but it turns out that you know when you try to push boundaries this much and when you try to push the limits you are going to run into some beta uh, issues, uh, which is like sometimes going down. And, and, you know, I think like one of the more compelling arguments to keeping a lot of capital on Ethereum versus Solana is that in, in Ethereum, you have guarantees that if you want to use the network, you can always pay more to use it. Whereas on Solana, if it goes down for a day um, and, and there isn't any there aren't any blocks being produced and then the price between that time somehow moves you know a 10 10 15 percent or something like that you can lose a lot of capital your position positions can be liquidated uh your you know your your uh borrowed positions can be can be in risk so that was that that i think is the biggest the biggest <clears throat> the biggest issue if we could think back as well uh, your question jeremy was around gemini and other custodians and exchanges why, why can't they just integrate this stuff with the snap of the fingers if you've ever seen videos of how like telegraph, uh, they used to have interchanges with telegraphs and you'd like put the telegraph into a pneumatic tube and shoot it through the building to someone else to receive it and pass it on. Use that analogy to think about how like a custodian or an exchange like Gemini, Coinbase or Binance works. Like these are all different chains and you need to be able to integrate them on the back end and then make sure at like, 100% reliability that you're transferring things correctly on the back end and then you're doing things on the front end because if you send something to the wrong address, it's gone. Now you're on the hook. So it's not one of these things and that's before you even deal with the compliance risk. Uh, it's yeah. not evident because in a way, it's it's not quite uncharted territory, but it's it's not easy, right? Yeah, one thing I'll add to that is uh, you look at Coinbase, you know, you mentioned Coinbase that lists both Avalanche and, and Solana, but even Coinbase was super late to listing both of these. Uh, Solana was listed sometimes in March, Avalanche was listed a few months ago, and that was already after they've been outperforming basically everything. And it was very clear that it has the most developers, that they're the most interesting two chains outside of Ethereum. And despite that, Coinbase didn't list it for a super long time. Uh, so I, I, I don't think it's 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 a regulatory issue. I personally think exactly like, like Ben said, it's just difficult to implement them uh, in a way where it's completely works. Uh, and for example, so, you know, uh, Avalanche has some complexity, like they have different sort of chains, they have X chain, C chain, they have different infrastructures, and all of that all of them have to work out perfectly. So when you process withdrawals, when you process deposits, it has to be safe. I mean, there's billions of, of dollars on the line, so they have to get it right. And someone like Coinbase can usually figure it out faster than someone like Gemini, because just a small exchange. Yeah, there's it's a new language hearing about X chains and C chains and regular chains. Um, is there 30 seconds on that that's worth doing? I mean, just in general, I would say that, um, you know, C chain is basically the EVM compatible um, alternative to Ethereum. So it's it's uh, it's the simplest way 
where you can implement uh, Ethereum applications into Avalanche. Uh, Xchain has slightly different arch architecture. It's it's optimized for slightly different things. And and basically how Avalanche works is that you can have different subnet for different applications. So instead of like having one uh, sub one subsection like Cchain, you can have different chains that, for example, only process perpetual swap protocols or something like that, where it works similar to something like like Polkadot, similar to Cosmos. Uh, but currently, you know, the vast majority of usage on Avalanche, I would say like 99.9% .9 is being used on the C chain, which is the EVM compatible uh, chain that's similar to Ethereum. Can we spend a minute talking about if you have any visibility into who's trading what? So, for example, who's trading spot Bitcoin? Who's buying Grayscale? Who's buying futures? Who's buying the futures ETF? Like what's going on in terms of money changing hands? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I would say, um, just in general, funds, uh, especially regulated financial institutions in the U.S., they're usually only allowed to trade futures uh, or now the ETF. So they're restricted by the by what can they do, uh, and and you know most of the time they're overpaying, obviously, like uh, in futures in ETFs. Uh, so it's not always the preferred choice. Another reason is uh, it's better for optimizing taxes. It, it's better for just already having a familiar product in terms of accounting. Uh, when it comes to spot Bitcoin, you always run the risk of custody, right? And, and that's a lot of uh, like a lot of financial institutions. And just just in terms of uh, just being comfortable with the risk that that you have or working with custodians, it's it's new to them, uh, and they don't want to really. Uh, just just have any of that risk on their hands. Uh, so I would say in general, you know, most retail is, is trading uh, spot. Um, some institutional investors are also holding spot. Uh, but the vast majority of like US-based financial institutions are only touching futures, uh, sometimes GBTC and sometimes DTF. Ben, you're dealing with this kind of client base in Europe. What's what's the your conversations like in, in the European markets? So it's a rather different environment here because there are spot ETPs, various uh, different cryptos over here. Uh, what we tend to find is there's a spectrum. At one end, you've got a very well-informed uh, institutional investors, tend to be family officers who have got a little bit more latitude in terms of how they get exposure. They also tend to be able to get uh, early stage tech investments. Uh, so they're looking for kind of higher returns uh, given the, the higher risk. In the middle, you've got kind of private banks, and that's because their uh, clients are banging down the doors saying, why can't you give me access to this thing that's the highest return that we've seen in the last decade of any asset class? And then right at the other end, you've maybe got kind of the larger institutional investors, pension funds, insurance companies, where they turn up and say, hey, we've got all of these kind of negative yield yielding euros and US dollars, like there's got to be something better than this. Can you explain to me what uh, Bitcoin is and how it's different to Ethereum because we're starting to get ready to go on the journey uh, to understand this this new asset class. That's exactly also the experience that we have. Like when institutional clients come to us, it's very often just like explaining the basics. Like what are these assets used for? Uh, how can we take advantage of them? How how do they differ from each other? Uh, it, it's not so much like the more sophisticated questions or even like the the questions that we're talking about today. It's more so about like help me understand what's the value behind this and how should I be looking at it. One one question on I'm going to wrap it together here. You know, so the Michael's question was sort of about the, in wrappers, and you and you hear we talked a little bit about DeFi stable coins, and there's some there's some of these DeFi protocols are wrapping using Ethereum Bitcoin. Um, uh, so that maybe sort of talk through why that is. What is the wrapper there? And and then then I'm going to have a question on on risks to Bitcoin from these institutional clients that I heard. But maybe start with the wrapping first. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, wrapped Bitcoin is, is basically just you use Bitcoin, you save it at some custodian. Most of the time, uh, I, I believe the, the WBTC is with Bitco. Uh, you store it there and then you issue a claim on those assets that are being stored at this custodian. So similar to stablecoins, it's basically the same exact mechanism. Uh, you send Bitcoin to one place, they issue uh, something to you that represents the Bitcoin on chain. And the reason why people are doing this is because Bitcoin just doesn't have the capability to uh, like have smart contracts and, and to be able to have some yield. Uh, so if you want to have yield uh, on, on top of Bitcoin, you usually have to deposit it to something like BlockFi 
or Celsius or Nexo, some of these providers that will give you some passive yield, but then you lose the, cust uh, the custody of these funds. Whereas in DeFi, it's quite the opposite. Uh, if you have WBTC and there are some uh, you know, farms or some um, lending opportunities, uh, you can deposit it there and, and remain in custody of your funds. But obviously the risk that you run into is then uh, the smart contract risk. And if there's a potential exploit, like you can lose a lot of money. So it's kind of like, you know, it, it, it's a trade-off between counterparty risk of giving someone your Bitcoin uh, and then running the issue of like losing all the funds because there's a smart contract hack. If we were to talk about the risk to Bitcoin, uh, one of these institutional question, advisors asked me a question. When right now there's all these Bitcoin miners that are, what are the role of the Bitcoin miners are to validate the network, and you have this sort of proof of work concept that the miners are validating these hard computations, and then they get rewarded with Bitcoin. What happens? 20 years from now, when the last thing is mined, all the 21 million Bitcoin are in existence, who's going to validate the network and how are they going to get paid to validate it 20 years from now? Yeah, it's kind of like an existential question. So so firstly, I, I you know, all Bitcoins are gonna, not going to be mined until like 100 years in. But you're right, like roughly 99.9% like is going to be in about like 10, 20 years or something like that. So it's going to get more difficult. And every four years, obviously, you know, uh, the, the amount of Bitcoin that goes into circulation is halved. Um, so it is an existential question that a lot of people are discussing. Uh, it's almost always kind of put off and say, you know, eventually, like, we'll figure it out. Like, if the price keeps going up, it's not going to be an issue because uh, because even the small amount of Bitcoin that, you, that miners will get will be enough to actually cover their costs. Uh, I personally think it's also a problem uh, that, that should be discussed slightly more. Uh, eventually, you will run into, you will very likely run into an issue where you would have to consider some sort of like a super small inflation. Uh, but no one really knows. Uh, so Ethereum is trying to solve this in a, in a different way and I think in a more sustainable way. To piggyback on this question about, about mining, uh, according to the report, during the second half of 2021, 12 public and private mining companies went on a fundraising frenzy, each raising anywhere between 50 to $650 million through IPOs, convertible notes, et cetera. And this blew my socks off. You wrote, Year-to-date, Bitcoin miners have generated a total of $15.3 billion in revenue. And so I went on the, the computer machine, and just for curiosity, what did Coinbase do? Coinbase has done $5 billion in revenue over the last 12 months. So miners did 15 or and this is only Bitcoin miners. I think Ethereum miners, right. you said, did even more. Yeah, Ethereum miners did slightly more. It's almost exactly the same. So almost uh, also roughly 15 billion. But it's an enormous amounts of capital. A lot of people don't realize that. Uh, and, it, you know, it's a very simple calculation. You, you calculate the amount of Bitcoin that's coming into circulation that year and, and you make the assumption that most miners will sell it because obviously they have high costs associated with energy. Some of them don't, uh, but, you know, some of it, some of it obviously sold out. Uh, but it, it's it's an enormous business. So it's you know these these companies that uh, that create the mining machines is 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 overall the the companies that end up hosting them. Um, it, it's an enormous business that's very undercovered by traditional media. And a lot of that this year has moved from China to the U.S. Like it's it's one of the most mind blowing things to me that no one talks about. You know when when China banned uh, Bitcoin mining, a lot of that went to Kazakhstan and a lot of them went to the USA. And, uh, you know, Foundry USA, now it used to be the largest pool. I think now it's like almost tied with the, with the largest. It's mining exclusively in the U.S. And it's incredible to me that like no one's really talking about this. It's, it's an enormous amount of capital that's, uh, that's being mined in the U.S. right now. And that wasn't the case a year ago. So if I could press on one assumption there, uh, you mentioned that the assumption is that all these miners are selling that they're Bitcoin or whatever they're mining upon delivery, in essence. What happens if they're not? Because what's changed in the last few years is that now there are people out there willing to lend against crypto holdings, which means that these miners can cover their operating costs as they upgrade and maintain their equipment, and they never actually have to move into kind of crypto, uh, the fiat world is what they'd say. Yeah, it's happening increasingly more. I think like you know, most of the companies that do the most mining are not public. So it's the assumption that you kind of have to make uh, because, as you guys know, like uh, mining is a relatively thin margin. Uh, so if, if Bitcoin is, is not doing incredibly well, uh, they're spending most of the money on cost. So it's it's a reasonable assumption in, in that environment. But this year, yeah, a lot of the companies are, are taking the more 
kind of long-term oriented approach and are selling uh, selling less. Uh, but despite that, you know, that's, they're still generating that amount of money and, and that amount of money sometimes ends up even appreciating more. So I would say from our side, it's probably more on the conservative as- assumption because uh, a lot of these miners ended up holding the Bitcoin that they mine at 10, 15, 20,000. And that's now obviously, you know, 40, 50,000. Uh, so it's it's enormous amounts of capital that these companies are generating, uh, and a lot of them are try- you know going public or raising more uh, because they have the balance sheet to to kind of raise the amount of capital. You're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm your host Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. We have Larry Cermak, who's from the Block Crypto, head of research there. Benjamin Dean, director of digital assets at WisdomTree. Michael Batnick, director of research at Ritholtz Wealth Management. We're just talking about Bitcoin mining on top half the show. Uh, and Larry, you made a comment that it's a, a low margin business to be a miner. Um, I saw a proposal this year for fundraising where you know the, the big cost there's obviously the the boxes to do the mining so these these computers um, and then there's the energy cost which is a big cost and the the proposal that I saw uh, was not a pretty low margin business actually I mean it looked like that they could mine at like $9,000 a coin, and it was in the 50s to 60s. Now we're a little bit lower. But w- talk about what you see as that low margin. Is it it's the is it the cost of capital? You're sort of always replacing the machines. Is it the energy? What's your sense on that? That yeah, it, I mean to be completely precise, like it's low margin over the long term. It's it's very high margin in times where Bitcoin goes up from 15,000 to 60,000 uh, because uh, the, the the costs don't move that quickly. But obviously, Bitcoin is is structured in a way where if it gets incredibly profitable, more miners are incentivized to join. And basically, the only thing stopping them from doing that is then shortages on these machines that we talk about, these ASIC machines. Uh, so that's why there's sometimes mispricing and it's it's higher margin. And there's obviously a big lag. So this year they made an absolute killing. This year it was absolutely not low margin, but over the long term it will be low margin. And and it you know last like three years a lot of them failed because they ended up you know actually losing money. Uh, so so over the long term it is. But you're absolutely right. Uh, but then you know you run into the issues like I said with ASIC machine producers. You basically have two dominant ones right now. That's Bitmain and MicroBT. Um, and everyone else is is much slower. So you can buy machines from them, but you're not going to be competitive. You always obviously want to have the most competitive most energy efficient machines and those two producers are the ones producing them and when they run out of machines which happens a lot in these environments you're kind of screwed like you have to wait for more uh, ship more more of them to be to be made and and then delivered and a lot of that is made in china so obviously this year along with like the supply chain issues that we're seeing right now it's difficult to get you know massive amounts of them from china to to the us or, or to kazakhstan or to some other countries so that's another thing to consider but absolutely you're totally right like this year the margin was definitely good, but over the long term, it's it's a business that I would not want to be in uh, because you're making you know over the long term the Bitcoin is, Bitcoin network is structured in a way where it's going to be always super competitive and you're always going to push out the people that have higher electricity costs. It's always fighting for the lowest possible electricity cost. We've talked Bitcoin, Ether, um, DeFi a bit. One of the other big trends is is. NFTs, gaming, and the metaverse. If you were to say, what is the metaverse in crypto world? Have you got sort of Facebook becoming the metaverse? But what is the metaverse for crypto? And how do you see it playing out? Like right now, it's in super, super early stages. Right now, it's basically like having this like virtual land uh, that you sell to people to then uh, do some stuff in basically it's like as simplified as it can be you're, you're talking about virtual property a virtual land uh, in virtual world and because of that it's very difficult for people to value and i think what, what was super interesting this year is that you know crypto is still a relatively inefficient market so like when facebook announced that they're changing their name to meta nothing really happened and there there was like a three week break and then when they officially changed the name all these metaverse coins which is something like the central and um sandbox and a few other they started outperforming like crazy they've gone like 10x over a period of like three or four weeks uh so it's i think it's more kind of like betting on on this becoming a larger trend a lot of companies becoming more active uh so you see something like 
you know, obviously Facebook being the largest one, but then you have like clothing brands having buying some land or buying some property in there. You have uh, f- uh, shoe manufacturers uh, like Adidas and Nike like being more uh, more active in NFTs overall. So it's just a trend that I think that people are trying to bet on, but. It, you know, I, I, I encourage people that are listening to this, if you're interested in this and if you want to think about investing, like try it first. It's so early for these things it, and it barely works. Like it's super, super early. And people are kind of speculating on this working at some point. But the vast majority of gaming and metaverse plays in crypto right now is, is completely like broken and not really appealing. It's, it's all speculation. Can we talk about some of the investment activity in crypto? You wrote that compared to 2020, there was a roughly 126% increase year over year in the number of deals, but a 719% increase in total funding. And the size of deals are getting much, much, much bigger. Yeah, it's it's like... It's a crazy trend, honestly. Uh, I think it was uh, kickstarted by by Coinbase uh, going public and the direct listing early in the year, uh, and then with with the bull market kind of just keep running up, the valuations just exploded tremendously. So you look at like all these early deals, early in the year it started at like maybe fifteen to twenty million dollars valuations uh, when you were raising a seed seed investment round. Now, in some of the gaming or metaverse place, you start seeing like 100 to 150 million pre-product raises in C inflation uh, valuations. It, maybe it's a bit inflation, maybe it's a big, bit just a complete mania, but it's it's been very noticeable that uh, that just overall the, the valuations of these early stage opportunities have ha, has increased tremendously. And you see the same exact trend for a lot of the crypto VC companies. Like they're raising like billion dollar funds, two billion, three billion dollar funds, and all this capital is now fighting for a limited amount of deals. So which is encouraging like lower quality of projects being pumped out. And these like crypto VCs having no choice but to actually invest in them because now the best deals are going to Paradigm, they're going to A16Z, and the smaller VC companies that were used to getting like these really good deals in bear markets now are struggling. So the valuations are just like unnaturally being pushed up, uh, and that's definitely super unsustainable. Like I, I can't believe some of the projects that I see sometimes at, at 50, 100, billion, uh, 100 million dollar valuations, and it's complete trash projects. What about corporations being like the new VCs? Uh, Coinbase Ventures, I think, was the most active participant. This is – I'm trying to think of an analogy for this or where we've, where we've seen something like this. But it's not like it's not like Microsoft in the 90s had a venture arm. Yeah. Or did it is they? quite unusual. I don't think uh, – yeah, I think that's quite new. Uh, I mean, Coinbase is one example. You have uh, you have DCG, and another massive example of a, of a super active VC company. Uh, you know, FTX basically was started with Alameda, and Alameda was also one of the most active VCs. Um, and, and in crypto, it's just so intertwined that it goes well together. So if, if Coinbase is investing in these early stage opportunities, then they can more easily list them in the future. Um, and, and it's a very intertwined world. And the same is true for Alameda. Like a lot of the deals that Alameda ends up investing in and end up getting listed on FTX. Um, so I would say it's predominantly exchange businesses that have these venture arms. Um, I think BitMEX has a venture arm as well. A, a lot of different exchanges have, have venture arms, um, and, and they obviously have the advantage and, and kind of the leverage in, in, in the area of like, you know, if we invest in you, like there's a higher chance that we list you in two years, like if you guys do really well, and that's super appealing for projects. Like you would much rather do that than go to a, a tier B VC company uh, because you have some potential of like future liquidity, future like exit liquidity and stuff like that. I mean, you're seeing it more and more. I think a lot of it started with the big tech companies. I mean, Salesforce Ventures is a pretty popular one for doing that also, where Salesforce and, and it's sort of like the things that have a network effect where the tech companies will buy, you know, strap on first what's very strategically important to them. And then they sort of build the ecosystem and that network effect sort of goes around. I've seen it I, I, in just a story I was reading this weekend on sort of agriculture. Like I, I didn't think of Archer Daniels Midland is like having a venture arm, but there there are some of the, even in sort of food tech now, you're seeing the same thing. And I think it's like people just putting their balance sheets to work in a different way. Um, and I think it started with the tech companies who didn't pay a lot of dividends to keep the cash in the balance sheets. They find a way to put it to work. But I do see it more and more even in like these food companies now. 
I'll add one more thing to that, and that's that crypto is like so unique in this way where you have exit liquidity within like a year or two since doing the deal, which is, you know, in, in, in the regular equity world, it's completely unimaginable. And, I, you know, I talk to a lot of VCs, obviously, and, and we constantly talk about it's like them spraying some some investments and not even caring like what the quality is. And then it's so crazy right now that it's very like plus EV to actually spray a lot of these investments because you're bound to get one of these like 2200x uh, returns and you don't really care if you miss another like 20 of them. Uh, so it's it's just a really weird cycle where the exit liquidity comes in earlier and some of these like worse deals that you see, they maybe have only like two year vesting. The better deals usually have like four or five year vesting, but it's linear, right? So it's not like in traditional world, but you get every block, usually almost like every 10 seconds, you get some assets vested and you can you can sell them you can lend against them uh so it's a completely different paradigm and because of that i think a lot of these companies just say you know we're going to use that to fund the business a little bit like for example one of our biggest competitors delphi uh they started as a research company and now you know pivoted completely into a fund and and an accelerator just because it's so profitable to fund the business that way uh that it's it's almost a no-brainer for these companies to do it let, let me just quickly reintroduce our guests. We're talking with Larry Cermak from The Block Crypto, Michael Batnick from Ritholtz Wealth, Ben Dean, Director of Digital Assets, Wisdom Tree Europe. Uh, Larry, all this money going after these deals, and you just mentioned your one of your competitors, all this money chasing the deals is pushing the cost of talent. When you think about what are they raising so much capital? What are they going to spend it on? They're spending it on people, right? And the cost of people is going up dramatically. Do you want to talk about some of your experiences on that? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy what what I've seen this year. Uh, you know, I think <laughs> the market rate for analysts this year and and you know they're like relatively technical, but they're not developers has gone up maybe like three x since starting the year. Uh, we're now seeing some some analysts being paid like upwards of two hundred k just in in base compensation, uh, and these are like really young, relatively inexperienced analysts. Um, and and you know that then if we look at developers or security researchers we're talking about it's very normal now to pay solidity engineers or solana developers 300 grand plus because the expected value and the expected return of that investment is just so much higher um you know it's now almost like expected when you launch a project that it's going to trade at more than 200 million dollar valuation and you can relatively quickly return that investment if you get some interest so the, the job market by itself has been absolutely nuts uh i've never seen anything like it it's probably similar with engineers in the traditional world but in terms of like analysts and what we're seeing right now uh, you know, it, 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 there's just very few experts. And because so many companies just started hiring and started having new crypto teams, you you only have to go after ones that already have some experience and then train the team of, of younger people. Uh, and that is very, very costly right now. And Larry, I heard you talking with the bankless guys. I guess one other issue is that you have to pay them enough so that they don't leave and go get alpha because there's so much to be had yeah. trading some of the little coins. Yeah, exactly. I mean... <laughs> I, maybe I shouldn't even be saying this, but like we have interns on the team that have made millions of dollars, like like participating in these markets. Like it's it, it's absolutely ridiculous, right? And like, how do you retain guys like that? I mean, at that point, like basically our retention technique is like try to make make it so interesting to them intellectually that they don't leave because of that. But it's it's like so much not about uh, compensation anymore for these guys. And it's it's become pretty standard. So you, you fight for different things like culture, like the ability for them to do whatever they want to do. Uh, but it, it, it ha- I hope that this, this actually gets better because for me, it's a massive headache trying to retain everyone and uh, trying to make sure that, you know, we, we are really competitive on the market. They got to be enjoying what they're doing. You got to be helping them make their next set of millions. Um, so they want to be. They got to be working on the type of projects that got them to their first set. And I mean, we 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 just hired somebody who was into Bitcoin, um, bought two hundred fifty bitcoins at. 10 to 12 dollars okay <laughs> so he doesn't need to work anymore but he's got a yeah. senior position in one of our things and he it, it's it's a really interesting interesting gentleman that we'll maybe we'll talk about more publicly at some point but he he was into that and, but he's he doesn't need to work but he enjoys having an opportunity um and so it's sort of really interesting 
I, I think that's exactly my experience as well, is, is that you see a lot of these like retired 22, 23 year olds. And after a couple of years, you're like, you know, what the hell am I doing with my life? Like I'm I'm flying to conferences and I'm meeting with guys and, and drinking all day. Like, you know, what's the point anymore? And and those guys end up wanting to do something more and like have a more fulfilling life and, and professional experience. Michael, I want to turn some of the questions over to you for a second, then we could come back to, to any other closing thoughts. But um, so Ritholtz Wealth, you guys have been focusing on crypto for your clients. You've We've worked with you on an interesting index. Maybe talk through like how you guys have evolved your thinking in crypto, what the experience has been like, why you wanted to create a solution for your clients and, and how it's been going. Yeah, so as, so as you know, Jeremy and, and Larry and Ben, the amount of products that are out there for the retail audience is pretty limited due to regulatory reasons, constraints, and less than optimal in terms of not just expense ratios, but actual exposure that they're getting, what they're getting, what they're paying for, how it's tracking. And I wanted to build something for our clients where we can get exposure to the space. We think crypto is going to be a lot bigger in 10 years than it is today, but we don't have the ability to pick the winners, to monitor it, to trade it, tax you know in a taxware way, and and so we built something where we think that we we did that in a way that it is not just for crypto natives, right? It's not just for people that have a MetaMask wallet. We're able to provide the service for our clients. They get an SMA, which they're uh, already used to, and so that is what we tried to deliver with you all. And I think we're doing a good job so far. And. Uh in terms of the, the technology platforms, obviously the key is you need to have integrations with exchanges. We talked a little bit about sort of exchanges like Coinbase and Gemini. Gemini, I believe, is is well, it is the exchange that you guys are using, and and OnRamp Invest is the technology platform that it's all going through. We're we're both investors in OnRamp Invest as from the technology side. Uh, how's that experience? been going has it been able to open accounts and start and start doing these type of things yeah so let's just talk about like demand first when we first announced this we have a like a line for an email address in case other advisors individual investors are interested in learning about this when we open it up to the rest of the public because right now it's just for Ritholtz wealth clients uh so we hope to have that open in the first quarter and in the first week we got over a thousand email addresses and so there is an overwhelming demand for something like this because right now, uh, in terms of what somebody can get, somebody that's not, again, that's not digital native, they can invest in Bitcoin through Grayscale or, or the futures. They can invest in Ethereum through Grayscale. But we, we understand the issues with products like that. But we wanted to think beyond just those two. What if Bitcoin loses its crown? And you know, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But we wanted something above and beyond that where somebody said, listen, I, I also don't want to when Facebook changes its name to Mana, or I'm sorry, to Metaverse, I don't want to chase Mana, right? I don't want to be chasing coins after they go up 300%. Like I want just something where I could just put money in, I could dollar cost average, I could get exposure to the space. Um, and so that's what we've created. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. The, the as it becomes more available, um, and, and, and the hard part is the the tech integration. So people absolutely need to be able to trade that that direct accounts and and the integrations to the custodians is not easy. So I think the technology groups like an on-ramp are critical pieces to make that all all happen. But it's exciting to see exciting to be working with you, Michael, and do more more events like this. Um, any questions as we think about wrapping up the, the show here? Any places where you want to take the, the, the closing questions to Larry and Ben, things that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, Larry, so I know your clients are mostly institutions, and so you're in the weeds quite a bit, but uh, I one of the most frequent questions that I get about crypto is, I don't know anything. Where do I even begin? It's it's another language. I don't understand it. I barely understand you know, mutual funds and ETFs. So where would you direct somebody who like literally is coming at it from like zero? Yeah, it's it's a very tough question, and I struggle with this myself. It's a, it's like one of the issues with crypto is that the information is so scattered across multiple different places. So I still think that Twitter is like the best medium to kind of stay up to date with everything that's happening in crypto, but it's not the best medium to like really get up to speed quickly with like what crypto is. You know, there are a lot of like different sites that have educational materials. There are some really good YouTube channels that you guys can watch, like Bank Class, in my opinion, is quite good. Uh, the podcast with, uh, for more financial people, the podcast with, with Hasu and, and Suzu from Three Arrows is, is amazing. Um, but just in general, um, I would say overall, uh, start with a book, 
uh, the book uh, done by Anthony Lewis, Introduction to Block Introduction to Bitcoin Blockchains, is great. Um, and then just whatever kind of piques your interest, uh, look into that. I think in my experience, like bringing on young, inexperienced analysts, the best ones are always the ones that just start trying the stuff. Like download the MetaMask wallet, download a Solana wallet, just try the protocols, uh, try to play with it, lose money, uh, make mistakes, and eventually, you know, you'll Google stuff and you'll learn the most that you can. That would be my best advice. But it is a bit of a shame that you can't go to really good resources. And the block obviously has, I think, really great news. But just just in general, there's not like a simple, uh, simple site where you can go and learn everything. You have to be curious yourself. You have to dedicate some time to it and you have to be passionate. What what other for for is is the block mostly for institutions in terms of your subscriptions? I mean, we became a block subscriber, so we're getting your news and your research services. But is it beyond firms like Wisdom Tree that 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 could you get from some value from what you're you're offering? Yeah, so we have the news business, which is mainly it's a basically free retail product. So I would say um, you know that's that's a really good resource for people to just to stay up to date with everything that's going on. It's not the best primer to like learn everything. Uh, if you want to dive a little bit deeper, and you know you're a larger like institutional firm, you can always just reach out on the block research. And we we do sessions, for example, for companies that need to get up to speed quickly. We have guys. We we do presentations. Like if someone really needs to understand DeFi quickly, needs to understand the market structure, and just understand the space in a way where someone explains it to it, to them who has been doing it for five years, we can definitely do that. Uh, I think for people you know who, are, who have more time and who are kind of more on the individual side, it's just better to start trying stuff, start Googling, start reading books. And eventually, you know, if this is something that you find interesting, you're gonna completely fall into a rabbit hole. I think all of us probably have at some point, uh, and then it's hard to get out of it. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult thing to get out of because it's just incredibly engaging. It combines multiple different areas and um, I recommend it to everyone. It's it's super. It's intellectually stimulating. Actually, I I want to clarify. I misattributed or misattributed where I heard you talking about on a podcast. You were not on with Bankless. I heard you with FinTech Frank on the Scoop, which is an excellent podcast. That is definitely in my, on my weekly listen. Awesome. Very nice, Ben. Any closing thoughts? Things that you're focused on here. I'd uh, urge the listeners to go and have a look at this crypto index that we put together with Ritholtz and, and OnRamp. If you want to find years and years of uh, following this space, uh, being told you're wrong and then finding out what's correct, and then putting that together into a di diversified snapshot of where opportunities are in the crypto eco ecosystem at present, go and have a look at the composition of that index. As Larry says, it's not obvious where to find this information. You can troll Twitter all day. You'll have to filter out the noise. And then you'll have to have spent years learning, uh, going down blind alleys and having to kind of take an interdisciplinary approach to this because there's no textbook for it. Uh, go and have a look at that index, see what's in there. And uh, hey, that... There is now the good news in this space is that we do have resources like the block. Wisdom Tree is also a resource. We're putting together knowledge that really has not been easy to collate over the years. And uh, the good news for listeners is it's there now uh, and we're pointing you to where to find it. But that's all very positive because that was not the case five years ago and is still not the case in many places today. I'm also a, a bad resource, I should mention. And speaking of that, Ben, I'm very happy that I came to the space late, like all kidding aside, because there are resources now that like the block that didn't exist five years ago. So I'm glad that I'm a late adopter and I will definitely be stealing some of the charts from, the, from your uh, report, Larry. So thank you to you and your team for putting that out there. That was tremendous. So I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope a lot of the guys listening can take a look as well and, and find it valuable. Yeah, we'll link to all that in the show uh, uh, through our podcast. So we, you can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week uh, as well. So we'll, we'll send out those notes. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You listen to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. Thanks to Larry from The Block, Michael from Ritholt, Ben from Wisdom Tree Europe, our producer, Patty Hall. Everybody have a great holiday. We'll talk to you in the new year. 
Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.